This is Respecting Health. I'm Rod Pihovsky. Hi, and thank you for joining on this. Um, this episode is for everybody. If this is, and, and this entire program is not designed just for people inside the healthcare system. Um, whether you work in the healthcare system or you're somehow supplying the healthcare uh, world or you're a patient, uh, it, it, you need to hear this interview coming up. Now, we've already explored a bit uh, in previous episodes the idea of values and how they directly and indirectly affect health. We've heard from an academic perspective how different values build different cultures and the societal approaches to problem solving and world building. We've also heard from a physician with global experience in providing care to individuals and guidance to organizations, and we talked about how culture affects the care experience. And in this episode, we're going to hear about one particular value and how it can have a huge effect on the quality and the sustainability of the care environment. In this episode, we look at greed. But first, I want to clarify something I said in an earlier episode about information technology being the core of healthcare. This was brought to my attention by a listener, so thank you. To clarify, I meant that, and I mean that health and healthcare are information and knowledge dependent. The information and knowledge that used to be moved around on paper is now moved through electronic information systems. If you're a patient, you notice that everybody now is entering something into a computer, and that's happened over the past largely 10 years. And in that way, yes, information technology is at the core of healthcare, but it's not the sole thing that makes it work. The knowledge is the essence, and we depend on the information technology systems to capture, analyze, and share that knowledge. I hope that clears it up a bit. So my guest for this episode is Donald M. Berwick. I'm going to go a little bit into his background because he's the real deal. He's a leading scholar, a teacher, an advocate for the continual improvement of healthcare systems. Dr. Berwick is a pediatrician and a member of the faculty of Harvard Medical School. He founded and led the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He was appointed by President Obama as administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where he served in 2010 and 2011. Donald Berwick has long served the public and has received numerous awards, including the Heinz Award for Public Policy, the Award of Honor of the American Hospital Association, and the Gustav Leinhardt Award from the Institute of Medicine. For his work with the British National Health Service, he was appointed Honorary Knight Commander of the British Empire, the highest honor awarded to a non-British subject. So what gets us here? What brings us together with Dr. Berwick for this episode? Recently, he wrote an article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association titled Salve Lucrum, The Existential Threat of Greed in U.S. Healthcare. And I spoke to Dr. Berwick about greed and how it manifests itself throughout the healthcare system, the effect it has on patients, care professionals in the form of moral injury, and the corporatization of the medical profession itself. What's it like to push this huge boulder up the mountain of improvement? We discuss what can be done 
and what it will take to transform what many of us are resigned to believe is an irreversible situation. Yet through it all, I think this will come through, Dr. Berwick remains an optimist. And that's coming up in just a moment. First of all, thank you very much for joining me on this, and I, I'm excited to have you on, so welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking. I, 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 I guess we wanted to dig right in here. I, I read an article, an opinion piece that you had in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, basically talking about the existential threat of greed in the U.S. healthcare system. And um, I, 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 I wanted to know, how long have you been thinking about this issue, uh, the greed factor in healthcare and its consequences and effects? And how did you decide something needed to be said about it? It's been a process, Rod. Um, I um, always, since I got into the sphere of quality improvement, which is my main focus, I've been benefited from the uh, work of scholars who work on quality. And in the, in, in the quality world, the varsity world of quality improvement, there really is no distinction made between cost and quality. Cost is a quality. So right you know, back from, you know, for 40 years, uh, a sensitivity to waste, non-value-added cost has been just part of my world. That's what any modern practitioner of improvement focuses on. Um, when I ran Medicare and Medicaid for President Obama in 2010 and 2011, it did strike me, however, how much of the system is oriented around getting more. Uh, everybody wants more. And, and they're generally good people. They're good people doing good things. But when you add up the give me more, uh, agenda across all sectors, you end up with an unsustainable system that needs forms of discipline so that we can invest what we need to in healthcare and preserve resources for other things we want to do. So that kind of alerted me to this kind of uh, continuous increase in demand for more, more anything. Um, later on in the, in the, you know, around 2015, 2016, I began working with my colleague, Rick Gilfillan, who's a very, very uh, uh, skilled and, and wise uh, practitioner and critic of the American healthcare system. And we began digging in more on, on uh, where's the money going. And frankly, uh, every step of the way, I became more alarmed. Uh, I had already, I was already aware, as many of your listeners are, to the um, extraordinarily high prices of pharmaceuticals in this country compared to other countries, uh, putting medications out of reach for people that need them and draining the draining the treasury um, with prices that look, frankly, insane. I'm aware through other work of the effects of hospital consolidation and hospital markets driving prices up and up and up without constraint. I'm uh, a student of uh, the great Uwe Reinhardt, who focused on price as the driver of cost. Uh, and then delving deeper deeper into the insurance system, especially Medicare Advantage plans, watching games be played. These are very well developed games around coding and getting getting more payment, even though it isn't used for patients or uh, devoted to actually better care. And the pattern just came clear to me: everybody is gripping, is grasping for as much as they can get. Um, and uh, it is a big step to call it greed, but when the prices get insane and the behaviors get manipulative, 
and the patient gets lost. Um, I don't know what else to call it. We have to have some form of constraint. Greed is human. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be human. I am saying we need intervention. We need government and others to put constraints on these, uh, on these uh, tendencies. It's very difficult. Uh, the, the lobbying power of the incumbent vested interest in healthcare is absolutely massive. And uh, so far in general, uh, neither Congress nor the administration have found, any administration have found the uh, political support and frankly the political courage to deal with, to confront this so that we can reserve resources for other uses. But now at this stage, uh, I just think it's got to stop. It's just got to stop. We are taking money away from very, very important other enterprises. And that's why I wrote that article. And it's also something that we don't really talk about much. It It's easy to obscure and bury behind, well, supply chain issues or you, know, you name it, right? It's the way the system works. I think it's it's one of those things that we don't like to talk about. So I was I was very... Um, happy to see the article and, and wanted to talk with you about it. It's just so easy to um, diffuse this into this large, complex system and lose that core driver. I've been surprised by that um, reaction to what I wrote. Um, yeah, but it is, as you say, people say, like, we need to speak out and as if it's been a secret. I don't think it's a secret. I think we've all been aware of it. In fact, my inbox is now full of messages from physicians and nurses and others who are saying, absolutely, yes, we've lost we've lost the message here. Like I came to work to be a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist or a healthcare manager to add meaning to my life and health to the world. And instead, we're talking about money, 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 and I can't take it anymore. That's been a big surprise to me how resonant that has been. Um, it is edgy to call it greed, but I think when you look at the acquisitive uh, postures of some of the players, um, I don't know what else to say it is. Enough is enough. And um, for many of, well, for every sector of healthcare, we're, 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 we're grasping for too much. I, I By the way, I, I don't want ever to be accused of favoring rationing or withholding care from patients. I do not believe that. I believe every patient needs to get whatever matters to them in health and well-being, but in a country that's now spending nearly twice as much per capita as any other country, ranking 30th or 40th in longevity and in mortality, uh, maternal mortality, uh, we are we are not getting value for, that, for the amount of money we're putting in, and it's time to stop that. The money has to go t- to patients and their needs. Could you dig a little deeper into that that effect on providers. Um, you wrote in the article that greed harms the cultures of compassion and professionalism that are the bedrock to healing care. How does that create moral distress for health professionals? And are there other health consequences for providers? Um, moral injury, which was a term coined, I think, by Simon Talbot and uh, uh, Mary Dean, um, some years ago has become quite a resonant phrase. It means that people go to work and feel disconnected from their work. They're forced to do things that they don't believe in, and they're denied the opportunity to do things they do believe in, and that creates a sense of dissociation from work that is extremely costly. Moral injury is one phrase for that. 
uh, when doctors and nurses and others find themselves in productivity-based systems, counting widgets, counting uh, everything, uh, being held accountable, uh, it demoralizes them and uh, it makes them feel less joyful in their work. Uh, and I think that's quite real. Um, some people think it may be whining or, or complaining. I don't anymore. I think that we actually are developing a culture around the, the clinical work that is so organized around finance and profit and uh, money that it just it is dissociative. I hear it back. That's what I'm hearing from doctors, people I know and people I don't know who are writing. And I, they used to feel me meaning here, but the signals I'm getting are wrong. Uh, we were acquired by a for-profit firm, and now I have to see more and more patients every day. I, d I can't spend the time I need with with, with the patients. Uh, I, I heard from one radiologist, believe it or not, who said that their practice was acquired, and now there was a metronome in the reading room ticking off the rate at which he was supposed to read x-rays. Uh, this is um, so far from the, I'd say, the needed romance about healing that it is it's it's hurting people we are seeing it in premature resignations in staffing shortages i think in lowered productivity by people who stay at work um sadness uh, it doesn't always have to be that way uh, many places during the pandemic of course the staff rose to the occasion and were heroic in what they do we can't ask people to be heroes all the time so I think, I think the price is very high, and it is not factored into the calculus of boards of trustees and C-suites in many places that become over-focused on, on finance. Or to put it differently, they don't understand the connection between quality and business success. They've forgotten what we should have learned last century with W. Edwards Deming and Joe Duran and leaders in the field of improvement saying the best route to financial success is to produce quality, which means meeting the needs of every person every time. We it, Nowadays in the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks to Maureen Bizzignano uh, and others, we talk about doing asking the patient not what's the matter with you, but what matters to you. And then focusing on that, and that takes energy. It takes people that really can listen and respond. So I'm very, very worried about this, Rod, and I'm getting all too much feedback uh, from the field about this. By the way, I encourage your listeners, if they want this, the article you're referring to, uh, called Salve Lucrum, uh, the existential threat of greed in American healthcare, is free online at JAMA. And so anyone can read it, and I urge people to lay their hands on it if they can. I'll put a link to it in um, the, the description of the podcast on the website. So um, I, I, I found it really compelling. So this seems like it's part of the existential crisis, right? I mean, do we run the risk of people saying, I'm not interested in serving the world anymore through medicine? Do we run the risk of too many people dropping out and we don't have the educated professionals available, willing, and uh, interested enough anymore to participate in this system? Well, it is existential, <clears throat> I think, in in, um, in the worst-case scenario, uh, a, a cycle in which more and more people drop out, either emotionally or physically drop out of the system, putting more and more burden on those who remain in, and it becomes hard to be the last person standing. And so it's, I think it creates an instability of a uh, a negative cycle. 
Um, and I don't know where we're heading. If you, you speak to any chief executive in the United States today of a healthcare system and ask what their number one problem is, uh, they'll say it's workforce, uh, the, the, the uh, vacancies, uh, absences, morale. Ask them what their number two problem is, they'll say workforce. It's just, it's everything today. And uh, they're ringing an alarm. And I think, yes, you're ringing an alarm because we are not treating this workforce the way it needs to be valued and embraced. And that's by changing our focus. Uh, now, I don't think, by the way, clinicians uh, are escape scot-free from this. I think we also have tried to get everything we can. Our guilds celebrate um, incomes and uh, higher and higher incomes for clinicians. That's their job. That's why the members pay dues. But that's another form of instability. We, 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 need, we need to stop it. And uh, it's going to take everybody remembering why we're here. Exactly how unstable it is, I don't know. The, te- the, the calculus is pretty disturbing. The Medicare Trust Fund, uh, assuming President Biden's recent uh, tax proposal is passed, will be extended a few more years, but it's always on the edge of running out of money. The, the uh, Part A Medicare Trust Fund, the Hospital Trust Fund, uh, we are solving our cost problem in quotes uh, by passing more and more costs to individuals, out-of-pocket costs are rising fast, and the public knows that, and that is a consequence of this acquisitive uh, business model we have. Uh, and medical debt is soaring. 110 million Americans are in medical debt right now. It's the, it's the most common form of debt. Uh, it's among, if not the top, it's one of the top two causes of bankruptcy in this country. Um, and um, a lot of uh, medical bills are in collection. That's not a stable system. That means people are scared to get care and they're scared of what happens if they get sick. And all of that's coming from pricing and acquisitiveness and and growth. There are drivers of cost, of course. We're an aging population. Uh, we have wonderful new technologies that can help. Uh, some drug development is expensive, but a lot of this uh, this draining of resources is coming from people trying to get everything they possibly can through, largely through pricing, as you said. You mentioned um, the medical debt, and I think uh, the article that you uh, reference in, in your articles, uh, or your article rather, uh, says that 41% of all U.S. adults in the U.S. have some kind of medical debt. Um, and the stress and the... the, the <laughs> The uh, well, the stress I guess that comes from that can't be good for our health either. And then we create kind of a cycle, getting sick yeah, again, uh, and then you know accruing more debt. Yeah, med- medical care is embedded in the economy and the soci- social circumstances as a whole, and we still have a lot of poverty in this country. And even people who we wouldn't who don't consider themselves poor have very low savings, and medical debt exceeds savings. Uh, in in many many cases, the the, the median amount of money uh, that uh, people in this country have in savings is remarkably low. I think it's of the order of five thousand dollars at the most, and it's easy to have medical debt more than that. And there are a lot of people in this country whose savings are zero. So get into healthcare, find higher copays, higher shifting of cost to individuals, and this is a, uh, it's a terrible problem for people to bear. And you're right, stress and health are connected, and uh, I don't doubt that this is a driver also of, of, um, of poorer health. It's, it's, it's the wrong cycle to be in. And by the way, not present in other countries. The comments we're making on medical debt are simply not true. 
in other Western democracies. They have found ways to fund and support healthcare um, and to, to put constraints on prices uh, such that medical debt is not a characteristic of living in those countries. Here it is. And uh, so it's not inevitable. It's, we built it right into the system. I want to uh, go back a little bit here and, and ask you about, you've worked for many years now with uh, IHI and a lot of people are familiar with the triple aim, sometimes the quadruple or quintuple aim as we continue to modify that. Um, and for those of us, uh, for, for the listeners who aren't sure that uh, or are familiar with the triple aim, it focuses on better care, better population health, and lowering costs. And, and these seem like totally reasonable goals, and they're very optimistic. Um, are you still optimistic that we can make these kind of changes, or is the system our biggest obstacle to doing these reasonable things? Well, I'm by nature optimistic. Uh, and you say, am I optimistic that we could do it? Yes, we could. I mean, there, there is no question, no longer any question in my mind that there are designs of care delivery, finance, investments in well-being that work. Uh, they work well. There are examples of success here and abroad in localities and in other countries. So could we have the triple aim, better care for individuals, uh, better health for our population and lower per capita costs? Absolutely, yes. It's a matter of will, not a matter of uh, plausibility. This plane can fly, but we have to get it off the ground. Um, but the uh, control, the hammerlock that um, wealth uh, has in this country, the driving imperative of uh, excess profit is connected to political uh, power in this country. Uh, greed uh, accumulates wealth, wealth accumulates lobbying power, and lobbying power prevents constraint on greed. And we are caught in that sucker right now. And I can tell you what it feels like as sitting in my chair uh, in a very progressive administration under President Obama the phone rang constantly from lobbyists and uh, vested interests saying, don't touch this dialysis unit, don't touch this payment system, don't, you know, don't, don't tread on me. Uh, I want to keep what I have. By the way, I want more. And that comes right through the halls of Congress, right into the Oval Office, and the, uh, the, the lobbying power is immense. Uh, you can see it today now in the reactions to recent criticism of Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage is channeling a ton of money out of uh, public interests and into private coffers. My uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Rich Kronick, has uh, published data which suggests that in the next eight years, Medicare Advantage, the, the, uh, the private portion of Medicare, will take $600 billion dollars in excess payment uh, compared to traditional Medicare, and that money is going into largely into profit and stockholder sh share values and finance, not into well-being for patients. Uh, so recently, uh, CMS issued an advance notice of proposed changes in Medicare Advantage, just small ones actually, to change some of the coding games that are going on, where Medicare Advantage plans make money by coding diagnoses for patients that have nothing to do with the patient's well-being. The patient may have the condition, but it has nothing to do with the cost of their care. Uh, CMS has proposed some very minimal, I think, changes in those coding and uh, practices in the Medicare Advantage uh, industry and those who depend on them coming out of the woodwork with 
crawling all over Capitol Hill, uh, you know, blasting uh, messages to the administration, buying a three and a half million dollar ad in the Super Bowl. Um, so there is a lot of power there, many deep pockets trying to maintain the status quo. And that discourages me. I, I don't have deep pockets like that. And we, we, the American public, who stand to gain so much from a better healthcare system, we are not organized to push back on this immense power of the status quo. Uh, we should be, perhaps we could be. And in the, in the paper, I do suggest that maybe there are enough patients who are sick and tired of out-of-pocket costs, physicians who are sick and tired of moral injury, uh, even executives who know they're playing a game and really wish they didn't have to. Maybe there's enough of us to come together as some political force, coalition force, voting force to say, nope, enough is enough. Let's, we've got to stop this game. Uh, but so far, we don't see it. So I, I'm trying to hold on to optimism, Rod, but uh, the politics are vicious. We could start the people's lobby. Yeah. I mean, the, the money, our money, and it's right. our money, should be going into helping make us help us approve our lives. Uh, sometimes we could do that through private purchase. Often we rely on government and collective action, but we, we have the money. I mean, we're spending what nearly 20% of the gross domestic product on quote healthcare easily, easily a quarter of that 5% of the GDP is just pure waste right now in a system that is, that is accumulating too much. And think of what we could do with that money. Think of what, individuals could do to improve their own well-being what businesses could do to improve their competitiveness what what uh people of lower income could do to, to dig out of the hole they find themselves in think about what we could do to our schools and our and our infrastructure and our uh uh you know the our competitiveness uh that money has other great uses so we have we, we actually have a very strong shared interest in getting this out of control system under control but we, to do that, we have to face down the habits of acquisition, the greed that has now gotten all too powerful. Well, could you outline for our listeners um, what what do you think we can do about this? What what are some actions that need to be taken? Well, it depends on the we. I mean, in the the paper was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The paper we're talking about, so that there I addressed what what clinicians can do, physicians, and I, I think. There are several things they can do, we can do. One is speak up, just begin to name this problem. And instead of being sad about it, be angry about it and call it out and say it out loud locally, regionally, nationally. Um, we need to talk about it, I think. Second, we need to act properly, that when we as clinicians behave in an avaricious way, even though we do it out of a sense of nobility, it still, it kind of belies our intention. It, it, it says, what are we really about? So we've got to walk this talk too. For our guilds, the American Medical Association, American Hospital Association, American Nurses, and so on, and our specialty societies, we've got to stop this agenda of celebrating higher and higher payment. Uh, I don't know another way to say it. Maybe it's, well, it is naive, but if you go to the website, the American Medical Association, which does very fine work, its number one achievement touted on its website is that it's gotten more money for doctors or stopped erosion of doctor income. We can't talk that language. And at the same time, talk a language that says we've got to redevote resources to the well-being of people. Um, so it's a, a matter of authenticity. There's a political edge to this. There are things government needs to do. Take, for example, the CMS advance notice 
a Medicare Advantage payment, we need to speak up politically, write to your congressman, write to your senator, uh, say we need to support CMS in this in this step. Uh, we need stronger uh, antitrust mechanisms now to take apart some of the market consolidation that's leading to much higher prices in our local markets. We need to work hard on fraud and support the uh, government in its anti-fraud efforts, which are substantial and quite capable, but need more support. Um, and and we, we need to um, be, begin to move away from the fee-for-service payment system, I think, which is the it's the breeding ground for greed, uh, and come up with uh, more advanced forms of payment. I personally favor, uh, I, prefer, I would prefer to see Medicare for all in this country. I think it's a single-payer government payer. It's not perfect. It's subject to a lot of political pressures, but it doesn't have the underlying driving profit motive that private industry does. And uh, as CMS administrator, um, you know, uh, I I came to work every day for the purpose of helping patients, not for returning value to shareholders. That was my, my job was to make care better. And I knew it every day. And that's what I help people accountable for. Um, simplified payment system would help but that's going to take a lot of political will so use your political voice and by all means vote go to the polls and vote for candidates who are willing to take on uh these current vested interests that's what i say to clinicians for the public at large it's much harder because the um healthcare system the generators of these excess costs they're quite opaque they're quite complex of for for people who don't spend their lives thinking about it like I do, and it's complex for me, so I think uh, we have, we need a, a strategy for um, alerting uh, the American public better about how healthcare as an industry really works, what the generators of these costs are. Why does my bill look like this? So so difficult to understand. Why do get? Why do I? Why can I never predict? The amount of money I have to pay to pick up my medicine, uh, you know, what what is this thing about Medicare Advantage? What is going on there? And and so actually, I'm starting a podcast. If I can just take a moment to say so, uh, sure. With my colleague Kate Armate at uh, at IHI, we're starting a podcast very soon called "Turn On the Lights," and it is uh, an attempt to do exactly what I said to take issues like uh, populations that get left out, prices that make no sense, uh, bills that look crazy. Uh, uh, the uh, the market consolidation things that are very hard for people not in not in the industry to understand and make it much more accessible to people so they can begin to see what these dynamics look like and I think be more informed voters uh, and activists in their communities uh, so that's part of the strategy I don't have a magic wand I don't know the answer really to how to put constraint on greed I know we need government to help do it and we need uh, voters who are fed up who say enough is enough and uh beyond that i think we need leaders who will get together and make make a decision to stop if i i know i'm talking too long here but one other thought is um communities because a lot of healthcare spend really is localized in the town or city you live in or the rural area you live in and it is your money uh, that's being spent and i i think maybe it's possible for some coalitions to form uh, in communities to say, we may not be able to change the country, but we can change what's happening here in Rochester or Omaha or, or, um, or, or Stockton, you know, we're, we're going to take this on and make this a place where healthcare is not busting the bank and putting people in bankruptcy and where 
everyone gets the care they need, but the excess goes away. I think that's possible, and I hope that may happen. So I have um, two more questions for you, and 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 this has been a great discussion. Um, has a lot of this come up relatively recently over your career, or has it always been like that, but now exacerbated somehow? How has healthcare and this problem changed um, over the course of your career? When I was in training as a physician, I don't think I was mindful about the issues of the economics of care that we're talking about. Um, I went and tried to take care of people. And at, in those days, uh, that's what I got to do. Um, as a trainee, um, I was taught that the buck stopped with me and I really needed to do everything I, I could possibly do on behalf of the people I took care of. That was drilled into me, that sense of responsibility. When I uh, became a, when I, when I became a fully qualified physician, my practice was largely in a health maintenance organization, the Harvard Community Health Plan. And I know HMOs have gotten a bad rep, but that's not the HMOs that I was in. The, the Harvard Community Health Plan was a single group prepaid practice and the only thing I had to do was meet patients' needs. I was on a salary, so I didn't have to think about doing more or less in order to make more or less money. My money was my salary, and then I got to help people. We had team-based care, so if I needed an allergist on the spot, the allergist came on the spot. If I needed someone to visit a patient home, we had we had a nurse practitioner to go right away. So I, I you know, I was in a bit of a dream world, and I, yes, I thought about cost. I didn't want to waste things, but. Uh, but then things started to change, and I think the corporatization of healthcare, it really began to take over. I could see it happen in the late 80s and 90s, um, and uh, it happened through growth and consolidation. It happened through uh, uh, very aggressive uh, business models of based on high revenue. Uh, it was, um, you could almost feel it change. The other change that I think I'm not sure about this. It'd be great research study to do. It has to do with governance. I, I guess I had the feeling when I was in the early days of my practice that the people running the show understood healthcare. Many of them were doctors and nurses. Um, and the boards of trustees and the executives were people who spoke the same language that I did as a clinician. Today, that's not true. Uh, I think there's growing evidence that the boards of trustees of hospitals and health systems now have a great underrepresentation of clinicians and patients and nurses and doctors who understand care and a great overrepresentation of venture capital, real estate tycoons, uh, wealthy philanthropists, people who of course care about healthcare but don't understand it and they make bad decisions. The other the bad the worst decision they make is to suboptimize their own organization and the theory that if we just grow and grow and grow, we're doing our jobs as if they had shareholders. The not-for-profits don't. The for-profits do, and that's another problem. But I don't think that problem of governance was evident to me early in my career. Now it's all too evident to me, and I think uh, I think we need to change it. I must say, running CMS, uh, man, we had an $820 billion budget when I was there, and I was also struck that the uh, clinical... Uh, forces within CMS were relatively thin. They were scattered, not organized. So CMS historically was really run by people who were brilliant at healthcare policy and really understood economics and politics, but not necessarily delivery of care. 
one of my agendas when I was there was to try to change that to make CMS more and more what it should be, which is a public health agency, one that really has a strong intuition about what proper care looks like and help make that happen. I think that has ha- has begun. It's, it's ongoing there. And I think um, it's another example, though, that I think it's the people who give care and who get care should run care. And uh, that would be a change. Last question. How has all of this changed you? <laughs> uh, it's made me very grateful for partners uh, around the world who care about saving the system. Um, I'm so blessed by uh, colleagues who are re- who do reach across and try to say, what are we going to do about people who are not willing to walk away from this problem? And uh, I'm not sure that's a change, but it's always a reminder that I'm not alone. And we say in IHI, never worry alone. I guess I must say part of it is anger. I feel angrier. I have eight grandchildren and I watch the avarice uh, and the financial uh, drive uh, take resources that those kids are going to need. It's taking it away from them from the future. And uh, I don't like it. I don't like it. And uh, I I never, uh, I I always want to feel a sense of agency. I don't want to feel a victim. Uh, and so, uh, I feel more, more, I feel angrier now, like for Pete's sake, let us stop this. We know enough what's wrong. Let's stop it. And I'm not going to let up on that. Dr. Borwick, thank you so much for joining us on Respecting Health. I really appreciate your comments and your time. Thank you. Thank you, Rod. I hope people will seek out the podcast that I'm trying to put together with you as a standard calling Turn on the Lights. And uh, I welcome feedback on that as well. And thanks for what you do, Rod. I really appreciate it. I was really amazed at Dr. Berwick's candor on this topic of greed. It's really an important topic, too. As we've discussed before about respecting health, this show, it's about values, and greed is unfortunately one of the values that drives many people. Is the current U.S. system sustainable? I don't know about you, but I came away from this discussion a bit angry myself, and angry but also excited for what we could accomplish if we wanted to. We just heard from one of the many, many individuals who have given their careers, their ambition, and their call to a higher purpose to help people via the health profession. What does it say about this system that leaves Donald Berwick admittedly angry that we can afford to do so much more than we do and destroy people's sense of purpose and that puts 110 million people in debt? And of course, I have to say that to reference the system as I just did is also to partially obscure the problem. People need to change the system. Unchallenged, the system will always protect and sustain itself. We have to create the kind of systems that respect health in all of its forms, 
and prioritize people and shared purpose over profits. Transformation starts by imagining what could be. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Respecting Health and that what Dr. Berwick and I discussed sticks with you somehow. And I'm curious, too, did it make you anxious in any way or motivated? Did it make you angry, too? Maybe you have a different perspective on the issue. Maybe you live outside the U.S. and you want to share your thoughts on this. If you have comments you'd like to share or a guest you'd like to hear from, please contact us by email at feedback at respectinghealth.com. And you can also leave comments on our website, respectinghealth.com. Just scroll underneath the, the story and the, and the uh, player, and you can find the comment section. Once again, I would love to thank our guest, Donald Berwick, for sharing his thoughts and valuable time. I'm Rod Pahovsky. Join us again for the next episode of Respecting Health.